0: Well, if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, my name is Kelton. Um, I have the privilege of serving on admin staff here, um, but I'd like to thank the elders for letting me take a pause for my normal duties, um, and it's my delight to bring you God's Word today. Today we're continuing our, our summer series in the book of Ecclesiastes, so if you have your Bibles, um, uh, please turn with me to Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 6, where we'll be looking at chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse 10. Through chapter 7, verse 14. And you can find that on page 556 of your Pew Bibles. While you you turn there, you know, summer is usually associated with, with sun and beaches and vacations, you know, all the most pleasant things in life. And here we are on Sunday mornings studying what is probably one of the bleakest books of the Bible. Sermons on death, oppression, riches and the vanity of it all. But, you know, real life doesn't stop just because we're on summer break. Just as fast as summer sun can turn into a summer storm, the circumstances our lives of our lives can change just as quickly. The family that was enjoying a week at the beach one week can be mourning the a death of a family member the next. I, I wonder if, if you can relate. In your life, a day or season of prosperity followed by a day or season of adversity. Or even if not some drastic change, maybe enduring circumstances that that don't seem to be changing. They're not what's best, but you want to change and it doesn't seem to come. Well, the, the book of Ecclesiastes deals with life as it is real life head-on, life filled with unexpected turns or no change at all. In, in our passage this week, we're going to see that we don't know what's best or what's next, but God does. That'll be the, the big idea of our text this morning. So, if you're, you're taking notes, here it is again. We don't know what's best or what's next, but God does. So, let's read the passage. And as we do, uh, stay tuned to see how the preacher advises that we respond to days of prosperity and days of of, of adversity. Ecclesiastes Ecclesiastes chapter 6, starting in verse 10. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity be joyful, and in the day of adversity consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Well, to to work through this passage, we are going to consider in three points. So, first, we don't know what's best or next. We'll find that in chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. Next, we know some things that are better. That's chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. But God knows and appoints all things. That's chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. So, first, we don't know what's best or next. And if you're anything like me, you found that the first few verses um, of our passage, a little bit confusing, right? They're difficult to understand in one reading. So, let's walk through them phrase by phrase and pull out a a simplified meaning. Ultimately, I think they're saying that the future is determined but unknown. God is sovereign, but, but we have limited knowledge. So, let's look at verse 10. He says, "'Whatever has come to be has already been named.'" Now, the idea of naming in the Old Testament is the idea of having authority over something. So, the preacher means here that everything that has happened has been planned and controlled by God. Whatever has come to be has already been named. We don't live in an arbitrary universe of chance, fate, or karma. Listen to how God describes Himself through the prophet Isaiah in in chapter 46, 9, and 10. He says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done. My, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. The truth is that we live in a universe created and ruled over by God. He declares the end because He planned it. Everything that happens, happens according to His counsel to accomplish His purpose. The preacher then continues in verse 10, And it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. Humankind, just like the future, is known. And what is known about man is that he is finite and weak, unable to contend with the stronger one. The stronger one in in verse 10 is it isn't identified, but it's implied that it's God. Finite man cannot argue with an infinite God. Man cannot dispute what God appoints. Verse 11 shows the folly of trying to dispute. It says, the more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? Since we cannot argue with God about what has, He has appointed, words are of no advantage. They do not help us. Again in the, the words of the prophet Isaiah, woe to him who strives against him who formed him, formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles? We are the clay, God is the potter. He does not answer to us. In verse 12, the preacher presents two rhetorical questions, again, to show the limitation of our knowledge about the present and the future. Read again verse 12. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? Here again, the preacher reminds us of the brevity of life, calling our decades under the sun a few days that pass like a shadow. So, let this be your weekly Ecclesiastes reminder that life is fleeting. What follows is eternal. Plan accordingly. But his, his two questions present two ways that our knowledge is limited. First, we don't know what's good in life, and second, we don't know what's next in life. By good, he doesn't mean moral good, right, what is sin or not sin, that's clearly been revealed to us in God's Word. We do know what is good and evil. No, He has in mind the idea of what's good for us. We don't know how to best plan our circumstances because we don't know what's best for us. You might think you always know what's best for you, but the reality is that since you don't know what God knows, we can't know what's best. We also don't know what's next. Again, he says, who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? We know he's not talking about the afterlife because he adds that that phrase, under the sun. This isn't wondering about what happens after death, it's wondering what happens tomorrow. The future is uncertain. Anything that can change may change. And this uncertainty about the future formed the bookends of our passage, Did you notice that as we read here in verse 12, we have the question, who can tell man what will be after him? Then in verse 14, a statement that God makes both days of prosperity and adversity so that man can't find out what will be after him. It's the preacher's organizing principle of these verses. We don't know what tomorrow holds, and God designed it that way. We don't know what's best or what's next. But that's not all the preacher has to say. We might not know what's best, but the preacher has applied his heart to seek wisdom. And according to chapter 12, he taught people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. So what we have next in in chapter 7 is a section of our book that reads a lot like the book of Proverbs. In these verses of proverbial wisdom, we see that though we don't don't know what's next or what's best we still know some things that are better. So, our our second point today is, we know some things that are better. This is chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. So, in these 12 verses, the word better shows up seven times, the word good twice. So, the preacher is sharing the wisdom of what he has found to be better, and some of them defy what we might consider conventional wisdom. And we can group these these proverbs into four groups, Sorrow is better than laughter, in verses 1 through 3. Wisdom is better than folly, in verses 4 through 7. To wait and see is better than to be quick to judge, in verses 8 through 10. And finally, wisdom is better than riches, in 11 and 12. We'll consider each in turn and and learn from the preacher's grim but, but honest wisdom. First, sorrow is better than laughter, in verses 1 through 3. He starts, a good name is better than precious ointment. In other words, an upright character and reputation is better than than riches and possessions. But in context, I think it means something more precise. The second half of of verse 1 continues, The day of death is better than the day of birth. Here we return to a a common theme in Ecclesiastes, that death is to be preferred to life. Death means the end of suffering, of oppression, of, of all our vain pursuits. It helps us understand the, the first half of verse 1 as well, they aren't unconnected thoughts. You see, precious ointments were used in burial to, to mask bad odors. What he means is this, it's no use talking about a good reputation before death. You can have years and years of a good life, but it's never too late to ruin your reputation until you're dead. And in the end, it's better to take a good name than a good smell to the grave. So, verse 1 brings our eyes to the horizon of our life, our death, and verse 2 and 3 keep it there. He goes on to say, for the living, it is better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. He might have in mind a, a wedding versus a funeral. Why is it better? Well, he says, because this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. If you've been here for our series in Ecclesiastes or if you've read this book, the statement is certainly not out of character, but don't let your familiarity with the the themes and tone of the book soften the impact of what he's saying. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. I know some of us have been to the house of mourning frequently and recently. The pain and grief is still fresh funerals for mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, sons and daughters, close family, longtime friends. And it honestly seems audacious to say this is better. Solomon isn't cruel, though. He's just acquainted with the reality of this fallen world. He speaks from experience. The reason why he says the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting is because it reminds us of our end and we need to lay that to heart. Especially today, our world does everything it can to hide death and make us forget that our time is limited. If you you only go to weddings, you might be convinced that this world is, is full of potential. The best is ahead of us. But funerals remind us that this world is also filled with brokenness and pain. They remind us that this world is not our home, The house of mourning reminds us that we are under the curse of sin and still await salvation. The world and its joys are fleeting. Funerals prepare us for heaven. As hard as it may seem, I think the clear teaching of these verses encourages us to go to funerals. Yes, go to weddings too, but make it a point to go to funerals. Take your children and teach them in age-appropriate ways that this is the end of all mankind. None of us have a clue when it is that people will be attending our funerals, but we should all think about it. Learn what you should learn from funerals. The living who attend funerals should lay it to heart that this is their end as well. Not all people will be married, but everyone will die. And it is good for you to learn that now, remember it often, and live accordingly. Verse 3 deepens this idea. He says, Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Again, Solomon's wisdom seems paradoxical. Sorrow and sadness making glad, doesn't it seem like laughter would make the heart glad? But according to Solomon, laughter is is vain and shallow. Sorrow and sadness have the real power to change heart. The message translation interprets this verse to say that sorrow blotches the face but scours the heart. Sorrow is the, the brillo pad of our soul. True sorrow has a purifying effect, pulling us away from the comforts of the world and pushing us to the only true source of heart gladness. God, and the hope of heaven. You'll never find true gladness if you always find cheap escapes from your sorrow. Our world teaches us not to endure but to escape sorrow. So, when you're sad, what, what, where do you go to look for comfort, entertainment, maybe food, lust, money, what would it look for, like for you to choose sorrow over laughter? To endure rather than escape? One way that we can see the truth that, that sorrow is better than laughter in bright relief is in repentance. If you're a Christian, you've been brought to heart gladness through sorrow. Repentance requires a sorrow for sin, not just an acknowledgement that sin is wrong, but a deep feeling of sorrow of how that sin has offended God. At the conclusion of today's service, we have the privilege of baptizing Michelle Sloan as she becomes a member here. She is making a public confession, a public testimony with all Christians that God has brought her to deep and life-changing sorrow for her sin. And I, I think I can speak for her that she can affirm with Solomon that, yes, sorrow is better than laughter. Next, wisdom is better than folly in verses 4 through 7. Verse 4 is a transition between our first and second grouping. He's still addressing sorrow and laughter, but he introduces the ways of the wise and the fool. Again, verse 4, the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Now, back in verse 2, it seemed like the preacher was referring to real places, somewhere we could actually go to. But notice in verse 4, now he's talking about where our hearts are. He isn't talking about going to a wedding or to a funeral, but a posture of our inner person. Verse 4 is talking about the abiding meditation of the wise and of the fool. And the heart of the wise doesn't just occasionally visit the drive-through window of the mourner. No, it is in the house of mourning it's his residence. He has a sustained presence there. And the opposite is true of the fool. His sustained presence is in the house of mirth, of of pleasure, fun, and games. Now, this isn't to say that the wise never experience pleasure or joy. We'll see that clearly in verse 14 and again throughout this book. No, the preacher's point here is that wisdom does not run from mourning. Grief, pain, loss. It has something to teach you. Let it run its course. Take the time to think. Consider its lesson. And it isn't just mourning in light of death. No, in our cursed and fallen world, there are many, many reasons to mourn. Personally, I have not experienced the mourning of death recently, but but in the past weeks, I have experienced deep pain in other areas, And these verses have helped me to slow down and acknowledge it, to mourn it, to process it, and ultimately to bring those things to God. If you feel like there's something you need help mourning this morning, this community is the perfect place to do it, among your brothers and sisters in Christ who are ready to listen and to love you. It's not an easy process, but they would love to help your heart come to the house of mourning. But, but what about the foolish? The problem with living in the house of mirth is what theologians might call an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is just a, a fancy word to describe our theology of the end, of the, heaven, the new heavens and the new earth. If you live in a house of mirth, it means you're living like heaven has already come, like the curse is already lifted, like the vanity and futility of this age has ended. But that's not reality. And according to Ecclesiastes, you'd be a fool if you tried to live that way. The preacher continues with the fourth better comparison in verse 5. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the songs of fools. Then verse 6 begins with a 4. It's giving us an explanation of verse 5. He compares the songs and, and laughter of fools to the crackling of thorns under a pot. In the Bible, thorns are associated with Adam and Eve's fall into sin and God's curse because of it. In Genesis three seventeen and 18, God says to Adam, "'Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field.'" Wherever you see thorns in the Bible, they're a symbol of emptiness and waste, of our futility. And here in verse 6, they're used to cook under a pot, but thorns make more noise than heat. All show no substance. So it is with the songs and laughter of fools. They might be loud and bright, but they're empty. What is better, he says, is the rebuke of the wise. To rebuke is to to reprimand and convict by exposing some wrong that we've done. Again, the the preacher's wisdom might sound counterintuitive. No one naturally likes having a wrong they've done exposed. It it offends our pride. But, he says, the rebuke of the wise is better. Proverbs 15.31 calls reproof life-giving, and to ignore it is to despise yourself. We need to be rebuked. To be left in the error of our ways without correction will always do us harm. You might compare it to this scalpel of the doctor cutting away a cancerous growth. It's going to hurt, but it will save your life. Where the songs of laughters and of fools might be fun but empty, the rebuke of the wise is painful but meaningful. Do you live like the rebuke of the wise is better than the songs of fools? do you invite correction from those around you? And when corrected, do you respond with thanks and humility or disbelief and self-justification? It's a good practice to regularly ask those around you in what ways you need to be corrected, because rebuke is better. But to, to shatter any false hopes, the preacher reminds us that even wisdom can fail. Verse 7, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Oppression, in verse 7, might be better translated extortion. So here he is saying that even the wise can be driven into madness, into folly through extortion and bribes. Wisdom is better than folly, but wisdom is not infallible. Everything, even our wisdom, is a vapor. Well, next, to to wait and see is better than to be quick to judge in in verses 8 through 10. In verse 8, we have our our fifth and sixth better statements. He says, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. The verse reminds me of a lyric from the 90s classic song, Closing Time. The 90s kids will, will know this one. The lyric went, every new beginning comes from some other beginning's end. Well, they didn't come up with that line. It's, it's actually a quote from the Roman philosopher Seneca. I think the point of the lyric is that the end of a thing is a chance for a new beginning, right? You can be happy at the end because new things are coming. Ultimately, new things are our hope. But that's not at all what the preacher means here in verse 8. The end isn't better because it brings new beginnings. It's better because it's the end, The song lyric assumes that new beginnings will be full of good things. The preacher knows new beginnings will be all vain and empty. This is especially true considering the big idea of our passage this morning. We don't know what's best or what's next. We don't know what new beginnings hold. The end is better because finally there's no need to know what's next because it's all happened. We're at the end. The second half of the verse continues this theme, better patient in spirit than proud. A patient spirit is able to wait and see what will happen, even if they don't know what's best or next, simply because they humbly trust God. The proud spirit thinks it knows what is best and assumes it has control of the future or of outcomes. So, verse 9 gives a warning to the proud in spirit, Do not be, be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. As opposed to the patient in spirit, the proud are quick to judge what they think best and the result is anger. This verse ties us back to the beginning of our passage in chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. Remember, those verses pointed out our inability to dispute with God and what He has appointed. Here it seems the proud in spirit are disputing what God has appointed and are angry because of it. Verse 9 says that this anger is foolish. We can't be angry with God. We can't dispute Him. There is no room for pride. It is better to be patient, to wait and see what is best, what is next, according to God's purpose. Part of what it means to be patient in spirit is shown in in verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. This might have been a common sentiment in the preacher's day, as it seems to be in ours. And the preacher says it is a foolish sentiment. The patient in spirit, those who wait and see and are not quick to judge, know why. According to Ecclesiastes, the past, the present, and the future are all the same. The preacher said back in in chapter 1, verse 9, "'What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun.'" As bad as our day might seem, it's always been just as bad. You might think this particular bad is new, but no, there is nothing new under the sun. The question also exposes something in our hearts, that we know what is better. In this case, it's the former days that are better. But again, that flies in the face of the main idea of these verses. We don't know what's best or what's next. We are limited only God knows. So, to be dissatisfied with the present and long for the past, the preacher would say are symptoms of the pride and impatience of verse 8. It is better to wait and see than to be quick to judge. And finally, wisdom is better than riches in verses 11 and 12. These verses don't include the word better, but they have the word good and do compare wisdom to riches. Wisdom, he said is good and an advantage to those who see the sun. And in verse 12, he compares wisdom to riches. Both, he says, protect. But I take the second half of verse 12 to show the particular advantage that wisdom has over riches. It preserves the life of him who has it. So, especially in light of last week's sermon, riches are pointless without the power to enjoy them. And wisdom is what will, in part, Preserve your life so that you can enjoy the good gifts that God has given you. Certainly, riches are not evil in and of themselves, but riches without wisdom can do great harm. Without wisdom, it would be far better to not also have riches. Wisdom is better than riches. So, though we don't know what's best or what's next, we do know some things that are better. Sorrow is better than gladness. Wisdom than folly, to wait and see more than to be quick to judge, and wisdom over riches. Well, that's a, that's a short list. The finite knowledge of man is limited, but not so with God. Our third and final point comes from verses 13 and 14. God knows and appoints all things. God knows and appoints all things. Read the verses with me again. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So, after sharing his knowledge of what is good, the preacher brings us back to the beginning. We can't dispute with God. Consider, he says, God's work. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? Crooked here is not the crookedness of of evil or wickedness. Here it has a sense of inscrutable or beyond dispute. Making it straight then means changing what God has appointed. His point is that no one can change God's work. We cannot make his mysteries any easier to understand. We don't know what's best or what's next, and we can't change that but notice the emphasis in these verses on God's active role. It is God who in verse 13 has made crooked. It's God who in verse 14 has made both the day of prosperity and the day of adversity. The preacher here in his concluding lines calls us to consider the truth that though we don't know what's best or next, God made every day. He knows and appoints all things. First, he he made the day of prosperity. He made the day of weddings and baby deliveries. He appointed your weeks of summer vacations at Disney World and the beach. He planned for his purpose the day you got hired and the day you received that good news. He determined when at long last you would be reunited with family and friends. How wonderful. We don't know what's best or what's next, but he does and he gives all this. The preacher gives his, his advice. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. Enjoy the prosperity with relish. There is nothing humble about being timid in enjoying God's good gifts. Christians should be the best celebrators and thanksgivers. Paul says that God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So, have, have you known days of prosperity recently? Have you given thanks to God and, according to His purpose, enjoyed those days? Or have you filled them with complaining, with envy, with entitlement? One of the clearest points of the book of Ecclesiastes is this, enjoy God's good gifts. I think maybe some people struggle with enjoying the day of prosperity because they feel guilty. They know that they don't deserve them. They know that others are experiencing days of adversity. And I think there's good instinct there. They they want to be humble and to be empathetic. But God is a good and wise giver. And He means His gifts to be enjoyed. So feel the freedom to enjoy God's gifts and to share them. For me, this has been a, a season full of days of prosperity. I just got back from an enjoyable work trip, and before that, a week of vacation with family. Before that, the Washington Capitals finally won the Stanley Cup championship. And, and better than all that, I've been enjoying the gift that is our nine-month-old daughter, Walker, day in and day out. And in light of what we see in Ecclesiastes, I want to enjoy the season for the gift that it is, remembering that God made it all. So in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But God knows and appoints all things. He who made the day of prosperity also made the day of adversity. Some of us are experiencing a day of adversity today. And unless the Lord interrupts us and returns, we all have days of adversity ahead. In the day of adversity, we'll be tempted to get angry, to be impatient, and to ignore it with foolish laughter and songs. But the command is to consider it is to think. One commentator put it so well, it is a mercy indeed to be brought to think. And what are we to think about in the day of diversity? Consider, God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I think there are a few important truths here for us to consider. First, these days aren't arbitrary. They were made We've already said this, but it's something we have to consider in the day of adversity. Psalm 139 verse 16 expresses this truth beautifully. David is speaking about when we are still being made in our mother's wombs and says, "'Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them.'" The truth is that even before we were born, God had formed every one of our days, none catch Him by surprise. There aren't any filler days in between the really important days. These days are made by God. Second, these days are made with purpose. Notice in verse 14 that God made these diverse days so that man might not find out anything that will be after Him. God is doing something in the design of His days. Here the preacher shows that one of the purposes is to keep us from knowing what's next, What what is ahead of us is both days of prosperity and adversity. It's a reminder that that God is God and we are not. Only He knows what is next. But this passage also shows some of his other purposes. Right? In in the day of mourning, His purpose is that we lay it to heart. In our sorrow he intends our heart to be made glad. In practice, though, we often cannot search out God's purposes in our days. It's one of our limitations. Only He knows the end from the beginning. But there is a third and and most important thing to consider in the day of adversity, and that is God Himself. We started today by thinking about a transcendent God and how limited we are. Let's conclude by thinking about an imminent God and how loved we are. Our greatest comfort in the day of adversity is not only knowing that God has planned our days with purpose, but to know who this God is. Charles Spurgeon said, when you cannot trace God's hand, we must trust His heart. And there is no better place to know the heart of God toward His people than at the cross of Jesus Christ. Here, more than anywhere else, is God's pledge and proof that He is doing good for us, in the day of diversity. The God who d- planned our days of diversity with purpose is the same one in who in wisdom planned our rescue from sin. When we were hopelessly in bondage to sin and justly deserving God's wrath, God sent His Son to, not to condemn us but to love and to shepherd. This Jesus drew near as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, so that he could be a merciful and high priest in the household of God. This Jesus taught that those who mourn are blessed, for they shall be comforted. This Jesus is the one who brought Mary and Martha to the house of mourning when their brother Lazarus died, because he knew it was better for them to lay their end to heart, that though they die, yet they shall live, because he is life. In Him is life because He gave it up on our behalf. He suffered the punishment of death that we deserve so that we could be forgiven of sin and reconciled to God. And because of that gift, we have the hope that God now works all things, every day of prosperity and every day of adversity, for our good. Though we don't know what's best or what's next, our God does. And he who did not spare his own son will with him graciously give us all things. In whatever is next, let us consider him.